welcome to Estradile Illusions. We are back with yet another, it's been uh, Utah week for the podcast. This is our third episode covering a filmmaker from either Sundance or Slamdance. And this is really one of my absolute favorites from both festivals. One that I think I, I talked about more than more than most at my time in, in Park City. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Steve Markle, the director of Shoot to Marry to the podcast to talk about his film. What an intro. What an intro. You are the best. And I was just saying to you just before we started recording, and I'm going to say it again, that uh, I love hearing your voice because uh, it's it's bringing back just a very fond memories of meeting you and being in Park City. That whole week was such a rush, and I associate you with that week, and it's great that we're back in touch. I like, uh, I'm glad we're talking. So Steve and I were staying at the same hotel, that lovely, luxurious Best Western. <laughs> there were a lot of, I, I ran into, there were a lot of people I see at LGBTQ screenings in LA that were there, and you have to like, it, it was just funny to... Everybody, um, you know, you're used to battling L.A. traffic, and then everybody flew to Utah to basically do what we do in Los Angeles all the time. So that was what a what, uh, a, what a breakfast spread at that hotel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, that boy. was that was honestly uh, like there were a couple of days where that that was my 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 food. I would right. be waiting. I'd be waiting. Uh, I, I'd get to one of the theaters, and I would have uh, one of my dinners was I had. Um, God, the, the malted milk Whoppers, Whoppers. Why had Whoppers and a Snickers bar once for dinner? I, the, the first time I actually sat down to eat a meal, I was at a Indian restaurant, mm-hmm. and I ate my food so quickly, they brought me out more immediately. Like, mm-hmm. they thought that I was... Uh, well, I probably was malnourished at that point, but it you was... Didn't, you weren't even asking for it. They were just bringing it. They were concerned that... They were, uh, yeah. That something was not that you hadn't eaten in in weeks, and that and they were right. Yeah, and I I was um, there was another time I was doing a a, uh, recording an interview at at Sundance, and I was like so hungry and tired and all of that that I was just even even hazier than normal, and I was like, okay, maybe you should have food before you record. Wouldn't that be such a such a great idea? But I was so delighted. Another another shoot to marry related story before we we dive into the film. So mm-hmm. I had gotten we talked about uh, we talked about this a little bit on the Queen of the Capital uh, episode. If you if you've checked it out, which it debuted uh, today, which is uh, this episode will go up a day later, but it just came up. So I don't imagine I'm going to listen. I'm a huge fan of the doc, and yeah, so the- I, I will listen to your conversation with Josh for sure. Well, thank you. Um, But uh, one thing that we had uh, talked about in that was I'd gotten the slam dance slate ahead of time, basically all I'd I'd requested a lot. I think I saw about 80 percent of the films there and I was using it to to train myself not only for the sort of the the mental preparation of uh, watching four or five movies a day, but also (laughs) getting in the habit of writing reviews in between that time. So because you really time is time is the biggest commodity when you're in Park City because there's mm-hmm. so much to do. You want to do everything. You can't do everything. So I was trying to get used to that, and it was a Friday, and I'd seen three movies already, and there were a couple left. And I said to my my partner, Tara, uh, whenever you are in a relationship with a film critic, you often have to watch movies that you... Uh, she sits through a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I gave her I gave her a list of what was remaining, and mm-hmm. I... I said, what do you want to watch? And she's like, I want to watch Shoot to Marry. This looks hilarious. And I was so glad because it really, Shoot to Marry is a a hysterical documentary that is, uh, it's very challenging to describe to people. And I've I've done it a lot and I'm still not 100% sure, but you're the director, (laughs) you're the star. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the film? Sure. And and I'm, I'm only learning now and I'm delighted that you're, that it's thanks to your partner that you saw the movie and and really that we that we met. Oh yeah, well I, I would have I would I, I watched them all, but but she that was Shoot to Mary was was the the handpick. You got the you got the best uh, you got the best time slot. You got the Friday night. That's uh, right. often we don't watch screeners on Friday nights, so uh, you was an exception and a very welcome one at that. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled that the two of you uh, watched the film. It is a very 
a personal film. It's about my search to find love after a very tough breakup. Actually, it was, it was more than a breakup. It was a, uh, a failed marriage proposal, which was very difficult. And um, yeah, that, and that, but that put me on this journey to go out. I spent a year uh, filming with unique and interesting women to learn a thing or two about relationships from women. And also, I was hoping that maybe I might connect with one of these women and find love again. It's a very, uh, like I, I use the word deception in my review. You're, you're, when, when you're interviewing the, the women, as you explain in the documentary, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're not entirely forthcoming. You, you reach out to them as it relates to their interests more so than, uh, you're, you're not telling them that this is, uh, that, that, what, sort of what the documentary is really about, which is something that I think about like in, in today's, today's present climate, that sort of, you explain that to people and they kind okay. of stare at you like, like who would, who would make that in 2020? And yet, I mean, <laughs> you're, uh, I, I, I've met you a, a, a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do come across in the documentary as, as very, uh, uh, upbeat, uh, pleasant. You, you just, you seem like a very nice guy. It, it, it takes a rare, rare personality to be able to kind of, uh, pull that dynamic off. Can you talk about kind of the challenges of, of, of your approach? Well, okay. So let me tell you sort of exactly, um, how I approached the women and asked, asked them if they would like to participate. Cause I think in fact that I was quite forthcoming with them. Um, I would, research for starters i'd research uh, interesting women mostly on the on the internet some were people i already had connections with um and i explained i'm making a documentary that was going to feature a lot of cool interesting women which i did in fact make that documentary uh and i also said that the through line of the documentary was going to be me piecing myself back together after this bad breakup that I had been through. Um, And that during our filmed conversations, I was going to ask questions about relationships and love. So certainly they understood that um, thematically the film is going to be about uh, relationships and heartbreak and that kind of stuff. Um, They understood it was going to feature a lot of interesting women, which it did. And I suppose the one piece that I wasn't, you know, explicit about was that I was, you know, hoping also to find love along the way, which I didn't actually think was going to happen. But, um, but really, when do you go up to someone, a stranger? I mean, it would be a pretty bizarre thing to approach a a complete stranger and say, uh, you know, hey, I don't know what, how this conversation's going to go, but maybe if we click, it could lead to dating and marriage. <laughs> I mean, it would be a very bizarre thing to say, and people would, would run. So um, I, think I, was, um, I think I was honest. And I'll also say that uh, I think it was a very positive experience for all the, the women who appear in the movie. We had fun. We connected. We uh, sort of learned from each other through our conversations. The, the, yeah, I feel like I actually made uh, a lot of friends during that year that I was filming. And you you describe at length in the documentary the the processes some of these people you found on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, which I appreciate. I I've worked as an academic researcher, um, playing like find the rabbit hole to like get get the exact source that you want or to, mm-hmm. to find something you're looking for. I mean, it's it's really it's a fun process and it's challenging and. To, to see you uh, kind of go through lengths to, uh, to, to find the women. And, and you do quite a bit of traveling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I live in Toronto, so the majority of the uh, women I interviewed are, are also in Toronto. But I traveled to L.A., to New York, to Boston, to Washington, D.C. Basically, uh, if there was an interesting woman that I thought would be great in the film and that I wanted to meet, I would go to them. Um, 
Because like you said, it is hard to find people not only who are interesting, but who wanted to participate in the film. Uh, and in fact, at a certain point in about a couple of months into shooting, I brought on a couple of researchers to help me find women because it, it was so time consuming. So I would, I would, you know, sort of, um, give lists of ideas to these researchers. I'd say, well, you know, what if I interviewed a psychic, a female rabbi, a female firefighter, a female pilot, whatever it is, long lists of ideas. And then they would go off and try to find these people. I'm glad you mentioned Toronto. Cause I actually, I, I've spent, parts of probably at least seven or eight summers in Toronto. And I know oh, the cool. city very well. And I was able to point out to Tara at one point you were filming. I'm like, that's, that's gotta be Toronto. Yeah. I mean, your accent, you, you sound pretty Canadian. So I was. Now, not... I don't know why that bothers me. It shouldn't, but why does it bother me that I have a Canadian accent? There's nothing wrong with having a Canadian accent, oh, but, so what, but what are you hearing? Cause I don't know. Um, I guess, you know, it's probably, I, I, I've spent a lot of time around Canadian. My mother's side is Canadian. Oh, okay. Uh, I personally, I get made fun of. I say like, we're going out. Um, <laughs> and I haven't actually lived there. So people say, where did, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. Um, I don't really know. Uh, I, I'm just kind of, I, I watch a ton of, uh, foreign movies. Australia, mm -hmm. Well, I lived in Australia for a year, but wow. I'm pretty good at, I, there have been even times I've been watching like Welsh movies and I've been mm -hmm. able to pick up the accent. There. That's pretty I good. But I was, uh, I was surprised. I lived in LA for a couple of years and when I first got there, I couldn't believe that within seconds of people speaking with me, they said, Oh, you're Canadian. I said, well, how, you know, and they would point out the, the war. You said, you know, you pointed out one out, you know, Canadian say oot, oot, or oot in a boot. And then there's like, uh, you know, Americans will say, I'm sorry. Whereas a Canadian will say, I'm sorry. Sorry, and, yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of these words. So once they, I had the words pointed out to me, I actually, and I know this is completely silly, but I, I spent a couple of days in LA working on trying to remove the, the, my, the Canadian accent. And I don't know why, but I just thought, I guess I just wanted to sound American while I was living in America. And, uh, but apparently I didn't do a very good job. Because <laughs> You still think I sound like a Canadian, but that's fine. Well, I mean, uh, I think a lot of like the the stereotypical Canadian accent you hear is probably more common of like people who live in Saskatchewan, mm -hmm. or they say like Saskatchewan, or I can't even <laughs> yeah. can't even pronounce it right. Or uh, Winnipeg has a, mm -hmm. a a bit thicker. I mean, Toronto is a is a big uh, uh, big metropolitan city, so the it accent is. the accent's definitely more subtle, but mm -hmm. uh, also like the. Um, I guess the Americans tend to, especially like on the East Coast, would would have uh, pronounced syllables a bit harder than you do. Right. I don't know. It's it's. I I I love a Canadian accent. My um, I I loved uh, I I love. I, I haven't been to Toronto in I think probably four or five years, but mm -hmm. uh, I love it. And I always laugh when I. I think I just talked to talked to you about it, but I I grew up going following. Uh, I would go with my grandfather, who is. A uh, member of the Royal Canadian Military Institute. So oh. I grew up. I grew up around all of these really old uh, generals and uh, combat people. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a as a young closeted transgender woman, mm -hmm. that was very 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 in interesting experience. You know, but, you did uh, tell me that, and I I forgot that. Yeah. And yeah. You, you still have family in Canada? Yeah, it, more in uh, Kingston. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about two. Kingston and Ingersoll. So mm -hmm. Ingersoll is a bit more rural and Kingston is more of like a college town. They have mm -hmm. the army war college mm -hmm. there and they have at least one other one. And then there was also the prison, which I guess got kind of shut down. There's a old bookstore there that I like to go into and mm -hmm. I hear about the city from that guy. It's a, I, I love, love, love Canada. We're probably going to go up to Vancouver for a weekend pretty soon. Nice. But, um, as it relates to, to, Shoot to Mary. I, I loved that you kind of went went all over because it's it's a documentary that um, really it sort of hinges on your ability to to mine these really uh, find these these fascinating encounters. Even from um, you you interviewed an old friend of yours. Uh, I wrote it down, Lisa, the mm -hmm. the person who, you know, I think. <sighs> 
you the 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 story hinges on your your failed um in, engagement mm-hmm. and yet at the same time i you know marriage is not an end-all be-all for everybody and i i liked how the documentary was able to explore that mm-hmm. for me marriage has always been a big deal it's always been something that i've wanted from a, from as young as you know high school age i would have i'm 48 now i would have been happy to have married much younger it's just i for one reason or another had trouble meeting the right person but as i say in the movie my parents are now 54 years i think into a very happy marriage a blissful marriage and so i'm lucky i grew up in a really warm loving household and my idea of marriage came as i i suppose all, all of our ideas of marriages or relationships come from our parents and um so yeah i really have wanted to emulate the beautiful relationship i see in my parents in my in my own life it's just taken me a while to get there it's a really interesting topic to to think about and um in a lot of conversations i have with members of the lgbtq community especially people who are uh a bit older and uh you know, we're in relationships before gay marriage was a big thing. Mm-hmm. You you hear a lot of them uh, echo sort of similar sentiments of even uh, outside of the realms of what we would, you know, consider, you know, the, the traditional American household, the, the white picket fence, all of that. I mean, you, you, it is a it is a common uh, unifier that I, I think really in the in the battle for for gay marriage and, and uh, gay rights, there was mm-hmm. something that that everybody wanted to uh there's a universal feeling to that i i have it too i'm a bit younger i uh have been in a long-term relationship for a few years now and mm-hmm. it's not like you know we don't we always joke we live across from uh the courthouse so we could go get married in mm-hmm. about 10 minutes if we wanted yeah. to but um it, it, it's interesting to think about the 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 ways in which uh sort of traditional uh, there's the traditional approach to marriage and, but that, that's something that everybody kind of wants, I think, or not everybody, but a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if everyone necessarily wants marriage, but I think uh, maybe, maybe this isn't right. I don't know, but I, I think that everybody wants, um, a, a lasting love to be, but maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe more and more people are happy to sort of be single and, and have shorter relationships and jump from one relationship to another. Um, but that's, was just never my thing. I never, lo- I never really liked dating. Um, I just always wanted to find my person. And I, I think it's the idea of sharing your life with one person is romantic and beautiful. Um, and that's just, yeah, that's just always what I've wanted. And the hopping from city to city, by the way, is uh, it's just a reflection of how damn hard it is to find that person. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of just all the ways in which society has kind of moved away from that tradition, people don't live in the areas where they grew up nearly as much. I mean, I live 3,000 miles away from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's pretty common. millennial generation uh, you, you've got to basically be expected to, to to move and you have to be in a, a right spot for the relationship in order for that to continue beyond you know oh i'm moving we've been together for six mm-hmm. months okay this was fun and you know I, and i guess that also ties into like the fact that um there, there's much less urgency around having kids so if you're able to mm-hmm. um you know, I, th- I, th- I think about the ways that it's it's harder to stay together, but I do like how the documentary was was able to kind of explore multiple angles of marriage. Like, you know, it, it, it's not the end all be all to happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned, you know, me going to meet Lisa, who was my uh, first crush in, in third grade. And she is now I forget exactly how many years, maybe 20 years into her marriage. She's got two kids, and uh, she's an example, and I suppose it's a common story. People 20 years into a marriage, um, a lot of them are, are struggling with it. And, and Lisa was extremely um, open and honest, which is amazing, in our conversation about how challenging it is to be in a long-term relationship, to keep attraction alive, 
to continue to be interested in in the other person. You know, you're you maybe you run out of things to talk about or or you stop trying or I don't know what it is. Or kids introduce a whole other set of problems. Um, so and certainly, you know, I, I was um, most of my friends in my friend group have been married now for 10 years, 15 years. And I see with all of them that they're struggling. They're either, you know, in some cases miserable in their relationships. Others have divorced already. Um, my brother is separated. It's, it's just, it's hard, you know, but between the challenges of being in a relationship and the challenges of being single, I'll take the relationship any day. For me, nothing is worse than being lonely. And, um, yeah, that, so as challenging as it is to be, uh, in a long-term relationship, I think that's, uh, those are better challenges to have than sitting, than sitting alone. So I have a follow-up on, on the loneliness, um, dynamic that I think the film provides a valuable commentary on, but one more thing on, um, what I thought about your interaction with Lisa in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, if memory, memory serves me correctly, you, uh, said in the film that you'd had a crush on her that she was, was unaware of. Is that right? Am I getting it? Yeah. I mean, we were, we were kids. We're talking about third grade. So of course she was unaware, although I did, I, I thought, I wonder if maybe, maybe, she also had a crush on me. I had to, I had to ask her. I wanted to know. Well, uh, it, it it really resonated with me because um, I don't talk a ton. Uh, I, I don't. I, I was at a. I, I went to a Catholic school for ten years with the same kids. So there have been more than a few times where old classmates who I hadn't spoken to in. 10 almost 15 years would reach out to me like how soon how early did you know you were transgender you know people who had had crushes on me or vice versa and when you talked about that because it it, it's so interesting these are these are kind of threads of ourselves Mm -hmm. that can be dormant for a long time and then you you reconnect with somebody and those kind of reconnections i guess are kind of rare but they can happen in bizarre situations you run into people mm-hmm. that's happened to me in new york a couple times uh it, it it it's fascinating about how the past can kind of weave its way into the present again and you learn new things and you think about all of that and it, it's complex but it, it it definitely resonated with me mm-hmm. and yeah those those early crushes are profound i mean they they stay with you you know and for me when I, you know, look, I still so vividly can remember and feel the crushes that I had in for elementary school, in junior high, uh, those early crushes in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, they, they really stay with me. You know, our hormones are going crazy. And also there's just so much confusion swirling around you know, trying to make sense of everything, how we feel and, and, oh my God, puberty and adolescence. It's all so just uncomfortable. I I feel, I can't believe that kids are given as much homework as they are. I don't think kids should have to do any homework because being a kid growing up is at that age, you know, when you're going through puberty and stuff, that's hard enough just to just to feel normal and figure stuff out, figure yourself out, figure life out. Um, yeah, growing up is is not easy. Yeah, my uh, my sister, my only sibling, is eighteen, so she uh, is still kind of in the middle of uh, all of that. But I just remember high school and and, and middle school, all the you know when when things would happen. You're like and 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 she would say, well, this is like the end of my life. This worst thing that's happened. I would have to say, like you know, I hate to break it to you, but there's a lot more worst days of your life that are are coming yeah. ahead. But you're mm-hmm. you're so coursing with uh, hormones and stuff that uh, it, it it's it's difficult. I always just uh, when I when I was in first couple of years when I was on hormones transitioning, mm-hmm. um, it was bizarre that essentially went through a second puberty and all of that mm-hmm. sort of 
irrational hormones. And the difference being that I, I'd been through it already. So I was kind of like had a front row seat to all of those irrational things and, mm-hmm. and knowing, knowing that it would all pass and it did, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, don't, I don't envy that at all. And it kind of hits on, um, I, I liked how in the film, I mean, you do tackle loneliness and, and the, the, the great thing about we live in this age where it is easier than ever to connect with people, whether it's romantically or mm-hmm. um, platonically on social media. Mm-hmm. And yet you hear from like basically everybody that, you know, they people feel more alone than ever. Because mm-hmm. I think so many of these connections on social media are trivial. They're very surface. They're, they lack any kind of authenticity or deepness. And, you know, it, I, I miss phone calls. So any chance I have to pick up the phone and call, you know, um, if, it's, if it's someone new, if, if, I, if I have a, I don't know, some business exchange to, to make rather than do it over email – I always say, well, shoot me your number. I'll call. I like, even right now, this conversation, it's nice to hear someone's voice. And um, it's not enough to maintain a relationship on, with, with texts or instant messages. It's too, um, it's not real. It's, 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 it can be fine for, practi- for uh, quick practical things, making a, making a quick plan or something. But... Um, I guess I'm old fashioned that way. I, I miss, I miss phone calls. I, I mean, it, it is uh, when, when you're conversing on a phone or in person via a message, I, I, I think I miss a lot of the, the mundaneness you you talked about earlier about how, mm-hmm. um, uh, couples, they, they get bored or they run out of things to talk about or they stop trying. I mean, some of the best conversations are absolutely, uh, you know, ones that are totally boring as shit. And I mean, like mm-hmm. with, with, with everything that's been going on with the coronavirus, uh, mm-hmm. making, you have to put in effort to maintain your relationships. And even sometimes I'll be, uh, doing, uh, like an audio, uh, talking on the phone while playing, uh, animal crossing or another game with a friend. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the whole thing is mundane. It doesn't need to happen. You could, you know, be watching something else or doing something, you know, conceivably, quote unquote, better with your time. And yet it feels good to spend time just just conversing. It's like there's a episode of Seinfeld that is kind of kind of like that, where they point out how, how much time the characters just sit and talk to each other. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's important. It is. And uh, and I'm not the first person to say this, but I think when it comes to dating, Go, jumping from one Tinder date to another is, it's sad. People are not giving each other, giving a stranger enough of a chance. And there's too much choice, endless choice, infinite choice. You can go from, you know, one Tinder date to another and never get to know a single person. Um, and, and people are too quick to dismiss other people like we, we have to learn to connect with each other and, and accept one another's uh, ugly parts too. Like we're, we we all have our quirks and our, our good sides and our bad sides. And it was one of the reasons I just hated dating was I just found people were too dismissive. I remember the first Tinder date that I ever went on, I met up with this woman at a bar, the classic and about 30, 40 minutes into chatting, I had to go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. I come back. She's on her phone. She's back on Tinder. In, <laughs> That's awful. Uh, yeah. And, but the amazing thing, I said, oh, you're, you're, you're back on Tinder? Like, what, what the hell? During our date? Like, you couldn't <laughs> wait another 30 minutes? And, <laughs> but oddly, it wasn't that she didn't like me. Uh, she... She actually, well, she wanted to go out again. It was, to her, this was normal. It was just that she was bored sitting on her own and she couldn't not pull out her iPhone. Just, it was, it had become sort of a habit, you know, swiping through Tinder. So it wasn't that she disliked me. In her mind, it was just an activity, just something to do while she, while she was waiting for me to come back. Didn't, I guess she didn't realize just how rude and strange it was. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it's like window shopping, I guess. Yeah. The, right. Or or just like a variation of uh, of Tinder. But I mean, I think one of the things the film really succeeds at is, um, you know, when when I when I saw you for the first time in uh, at the Best Western, I, mm-hmm. I I recognized you, but I also, I mean, I felt like I knew you already yeah. because you're very open, you're very vulnerable. Uh, your narration, which I'll ask about in, in a minute, is is phenomenal. But but you really it, it paints it, it. It's challenging. You take years of footage, hours of stuff, and you condense it into a, a narrative. And yet you you still did such a marvelous job conveying. I feel like I I know Steve Markle very well. Mm-hmm. Good, and I'm so happy to hear that. And uh, you know, being open. Uh, and vulnerable and authentic and all that stuff. That's something I've, I've worked on. I wasn't always that person. Um, in fact, I've had to sort of in my life work on being social altogether. And, and um, I'm more, wouldn't necessarily know it from watching the movie, but I am more introverted and inclined to be stay at home and keep to myself, which is not good for mental health. Because uh, I can, I can, left to my own devices, I can stay at home working on creative projects uh, without seeing anybody else for 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 months, and uh, I can go down that hole. But this, uh, was, which was one of the things that made this doc such a positive experience for me, was it, it gave me an excuse to get out of the apartment and go go meet people. But um, but yeah, working on. Working on being open is something that I've uh, been very conscious about and figuring out that, you know, okay, back when I was going, when I had these mad crushes in junior high um, and I was obsessing over, you know, Charlene White and Wendy Wahlberg and Cindy, what's her name, and all these, but four or five women. I was obsessing over, and I remember asking my, I have an older brother, and asking him, like, how do I even approach a girl? Like, I was just terrified, very nervous kid. And he said, you know, what girls like is confidence. Which, uh, which isn't wrong. I think both men and women are attracted to, to confidence, uh, not just in, in romantically, but in all relationships. It's an attractive quality to be confident. But it took me years, really, until I filmed this documentary to understand what real confidence is. I had a, this false idea that confidence for a man, for me, was maybe putting on some sort of false bravado or machoism and really pretending to be someone I wasn't. And I have finally figured out that true confidence is simply being yourself, being vulnerable, being whoever you are. And um, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying to someone, oh, I'm feeling... Uh, feeling sad today, I'm feeling lonely today, I'm feeling nervous today, or if you're in a great mood and in a confident mood, be that, but be, be yourself. It's, it's one of the lessons I learned from having met all of those great women who were featured in the doc, because it was something that came up over and over again. I'd ask them for relationship advice, and what I heard back over and over again was, just be yourself, which seems obvious, but for me, it did take work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I've had to uh, have so much uh, time time spent building up confidence or, or just sort of quelching the, the, the paranoia or the, the feels, especially when, when I was early on in transitioning. Like mm-hmm. the, the idea, when, when, when you don't have confidence and you feel like everybody's everybody's watching you, I think it's important to remind yourself that most people are just kind of looking at their phone. They're not watching you. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it takes a lot of work. And hearing you talk about your journey to self-discovery, I mean, I, I can think of like a dozen indie movies that are maybe even more that are about 
you know, men in their 40s who um, are, are on, not, not necessarily on, but need to be on sort of journeys of self-discovery. And, and it's about, and, and a lot of them kind of have the narrative of like, they center around, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, or it's all, mm-hmm. it's hard to evolve with the changing world or with your own feelings. Um, and yet, you, you know, you're, you're somebody who's, who's kind of been through that path. And can you talk a little bit about like, you know, was it, was it, was it, hard to sort of recognize that that was something that that would be beneficial for you to do? Well, you know, coming out of the breakup, um, I knew I was, I I knew I felt like shit and I had a voice in my head um, that was feeding me really negative stuff just constantly day in and day out the voice was just telling me you're garbage you're not lovable um because i really was uh broken after the failed marriage proposal and um i i i, I didn't know what i was going to necessarily get out of these these filmed conversations but I knew it wasn't doing me any good staying at, at home and crying on the couch uh, for weeks. So, um, you know, the first thing I did actually before I set out to start filming these conversations was I started filming my, myself in my apartment. This is not in the movie, but I set up my camera in my in my apartment and just started filming myself talking just stream of consciousness stuff just to try to process how I was feeling and do that in the comfort of my own home where it wouldn't be, uh, you know, embarrassing. And then when I had the confidence, I decided I, to set out and start interviewing other people about relationships and, you know, interviewed my parents, my therapist that is in the movie um, and then found this idea that, you know, I should, I should maybe try interviewing women about, about love and relationships and heartbreak, learn from them. Um, and also then there would be the possibility that maybe along the way I might, I might even connect romantically with one of these women. I didn't actually think that was going to happen, but I thought, uh, I thought, who knows? Can you talk about the challenges of making a documentary that I guess it, you know I, you you worked on it for years and there's kind of a open-endedness to to the the concept in the sense that you had no idea how it was going to end nobody knew how it was going to end mm-hmm. and I just when you think about the challenges that the documentary filmmakers have in terms of just trying to condense their material, mm-hmm. but for you, you have all of that those considerations. But but you're also making something in real time that you have no idea where this, how far the rabbit hole goes. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean that is definitely one of the challenges of making a doc, like you said, you don't know how it's going to end or where it should end. And it's, you know, it's real life, but it isn't. It's in that, you know, you film hundreds of hours of material. And while it's all real life that you're capturing, when it comes to the editorial decisions, and there are thousands of creative choices you're making in the edit, mostly what to exclude because you, you leave out a lot more than you keep and how to sequence the material that you do decide to use and um, how to structure it, how to create story out of what you've shot. So documentaries are very much constructed. Um, they're not as different than scripted movies that I think people might think. Um, the story is, is, is created in the edit as opposed to the script because there, there isn't a script. There might be, might be a rough outline of what, you, what you're trying to uh, achieve. Um, but it's story, and it does have to be, um, it does have to be constructed. It's, it's produced, and you want to hit certain emotional beats 
um, and give people, you want to take people on a, on a journey and you want to end somewhere different than where you started and make that ending satisfying. It doesn't have to be necessarily a happy ending or a sad ending, or it could be somewhere in between. It just has to be a satisfying ending so that you feel that the experience was worthwhile. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, trying to take real life. And in, in my case, it was, I was juggling a lot because I was the filmmaker, but also it was essentially my story. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a lot to, to, and challenging to figure out how to do it. Um, but, uh, I think that the end result is a film that people seem to, to connect with and relate to. So I think that really my, my, my favorite part of the film are your, the, the narration. I mean, it, it's almost, it, it, there were some that had me basically rolling on the floor. <laughs> like, I was laughing hard and it, it, it's challenging. It can be hard to get me to laugh. And I watch a lot of comedies, mm-hmm. but, uh, that was, I, I was just laugh. And I, I couldn't, I, I was, I thought so much about how, you know, you, you, this, this is a documentary where you're, you're sort of required to be the force of will. You're the, you're, you're the director, but, and also it's essentially kind of the, well, the women in a lot of ways are the subject, but you're also the subject, your story is the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk a little bit about the, the process of, of, of putting the narration in and, and kind of how the journey had, had sort of transformed your, your views of where to take the documentary. That's mm-hmm. like a hundred billion questions, but. <laughs> um, well, first of all, the, the, okay. The voice for, thank you, by the way, for the kind words. And I, I'll give you a little insight into how I arrived at the, uh, at the narration because the voiceover was the last thing I did. But as I was filming, um, I kept a diary of how I was feeling day to day, even if I wasn't filming with anyone that day. Um, because when I was feeling at my lowest, those first couple of months after the breakup, I, I knew that if, there was going to be a point where I didn't feel that shitty. I knew eventually I was going to get out of that rut. But I didn't want to forget how I felt in that moment, especially because the voiceover is all in present tense. So I knew that eventually when I was in that, you know, recording the voiceover, I was going to have to sort of put myself back in the mindset of where I was at the start. So I kept notes in a diary of how I felt day to day and, um, and then was able to refer back to those notes um, in order to write, write the narration and, and record it. Um, but what, what was the second part of the question? Now I forget to... Um. Kind of the 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 idea of, of of how the how the journey you you kind of answered it how the okay. journey had had shaped the uh, whole process and I, I well obviously you would have a much different perspective on uh, your whole adventure from uh, your dark moments in the beginning from uh, how, how it how it plays out at the mm-hmm. end but um, I, it, it the way that there was there's a sort of uh, there's kind of a Terrence Malick like uh, attribute to mm-hmm. the the you, you get kind of philosophical your eyes sort of it, it's like you're talking directly to the audience and mm-hmm. that's something that I'm always you know whether it's uh, whether I'm writing a work of fiction or uh, watching a movie from like the 40s you have to be like aware of the fact that uh, the material, that you're making is, is from that era, but you have no idea where, like what person from what walk of life in what year is going to pick that up. And I, I think it's very the powerful, the way that you, you've, you framed it in a way it's like, it's like you were talking to us in our living room. It's very interesting to see. Good. Well, that was the idea. I did want it to be intimate. And, uh, it's also in, in the way that I, um, shot all of the, uh, the, the, the conversations. Um, it's all first person. I would hold the camera right in front of my face and I would ask whoever I was speaking with to look at me through the camera lens. So they were looking right down the barrel of the, of the lens. 
so that it's it's the most sort of inter, intimate first person POV you can have. Um, and I basically for ninety minutes I put the viewer in my in my head, whether they want to be there or not. Um, and uh, yeah, I did want it to be very personal and to create something that felt um, real because it, it, it was real. And comedy and documentary are, I mean, there some people could, could perceive that as like oxymoron or, or they'll say like, Oh, do you mean like the office or spinal tap, which are not documentaries, they're mm-hmm. mockumentaries. Um, and yet you're, I, it's, it's one of the most effective comedic documentaries. I think I, I've really ever seen, I, I, it, documentaries do not tend to like and uh, i mean you can find in in some documentaries moments that make you laugh mm-hmm. or a character that they find but you were, you were able to really hone in on on comedy throughout throughout the, the entire film it's very it's enlightening while also entertaining I, I, this i'm having flashbacks to to sundance lines trying to explain to people how the, this documentary that is like very uh funny but isn't that is not a satire yeah, well, th- again, thank you for saying that. It, it, I, you know, listen, we have to laugh at ourselves. We've got to find the humor in uh, even shitty situations. Um, I felt, like I said, especially for the first, you know, well, really for most of the film, I felt really down and was trying to rebuild myself, uh, rebuild my confidence, and also just sort of learn to like myself again. Um, and quiet that that voice that was feeding me all of that negative stuff and um, but I, I you know I didn't want the film to actually be uh, downbeat I wanted people to get a laugh out of it even though I felt like shit uh, <laughs> we have to laugh at ourselves yeah I mean I, I I've as somebody who has a pretty dark sense of humor and I, I tend to make jokes even uh, when I'm feeling down I, I I couldn't agree more and I, I also wanted to ask about um, there's a sequence in the film where you're I'm kind of blanking on a better term it's not I guess I guess bathhouse is like kind of kind of the, the there's, uh, a, there's a yeah sex club uh, right there we go in in LGBTQ communities, bathhouse and sex club are, are almost interchangeable. Anyway, okay. but <laughs> especially up in uh, the San Francisco bathhouses. But um, you, um, in addition to kind of having to throw yourself out there from a filmmaker's perspective, mm-hmm. you you actually at times literally do kind of have to throw yourself out there. And hearing you talk about how you know you had to find excuses to to leave the house, I, I imagine that was. Uh, challenging to put yourself uh in, in that kind of situation yes that i i had never been to a sex club or a bathhouse for that matter and it's not my it's just not me i am a i am a uh private shy awkward person so the idea of you know undressing in public for for a bunch of strangers, it just, just, I would never do that. And that's why I did it because I felt like, um, I did want to sort of push myself, maybe put myself into some uncomfortable, um, situations for, for comedic effect. I was making a movie, but, but also I thought, you know, I've had so much trouble meeting people and why not try to come at it in, in ways that I that I hadn't? You know, you, you kind of you do have to get outside of your comfort zone um, to change as a person, and also to to meet people. And so, um, yeah, I I did that. I went to the sex club, and uh, it was, you know. It was for me. It was not. Uh, it was not a, a sexy place. <laughs> I. I mean, and I. And I say this in the film because I. I stumbled upon uh, an orgy when I was there, and then I filmed this. And in 
an orgy was something that I had always kind of fantasized about since I was a kid. But uh, sometimes in life, maybe oftentimes, the fantasy of something doesn't quite line up with the reality of it. And from this was the case for me. It was actually being there and seeing it. It was not something that I wanted to dive into. I wanted to run the other way. Uh, I and maybe I'm just not that adventurous a person, or uh, but yeah, it, it the the reality the reality of it um, just didn't seem as appealing as um, the fantasy that I had been carrying with me since you know discovering Playboy magazine at, at age twelve. Uh, as somebody who's been invited to multiple orgies and like, including like when I'm out and you know you could just go along with it. And mm-hmm. as somebody, I I lived alone for uh, four years and I was constantly forcing myself to challenge uh, my comfort zone. But uh, I'm with you there. Power to everybody who mm-hmm. uh, who who loves that. But um, I would I would I have yet to experience a six hour orgasm. But that would. Be, uh, <laughs> That would be that would be nice. There's still time. There's still time. Still time. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Slam Dance and the uh, rollout because uh, Shoot to Mary won the audience award. That's, yes. And I, that I was I was about to just say that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Thank you. I I was surprised. I was thrilled out of my mind. Uh, what a rush that was. Um, you know, it, it's funny because when I I had told my parents that I got into slam dance and had to explain to them, you know, what that is and what a film festival is and how competitive it is. And, um, because, you know, I want my parents to be, uh, to be proud. And so I explained all of this to them. And my dad, first thing he says is, uh, is you're going to win an award. I said, no dad, like I, I'm not going to win an award. Like, why do you put the extra pressure on me? Like, it's just an exciting thing that I got into the festival. That's enough. Please don't create something that you will then be disappointed by when I don't deliver that. And he, but he just kept saying for the weeks leading up to Slander, every time I talked to him, you're going to win an award? You're going to win an award? Dad, please stop. You're killing me. No, I'm not going to win. So for no other reason, I was so delighted to win that award so I could call my dad that night and say, I said, dad, I won an award. And my, my dad said, ah, oh, that's terrific. Well, I'll get your mother. <laughs> I said, dad, what I, did you hear what I said? You've been every day for two weeks. You've been on my case to, to win an award. I did. I went, okay. I'm just, yeah, I'm just uh, in the middle of online chess. Can your mother call you back? So anyway, it was, I was excited to tell my dad that I won the award. Didn't get the response that I wanted, but I am still thrilled that I won that award. It was it was very uh, exciting, and um, yeah, just you know when I started out on this project, on it was such a kind of it was just a whim. I just came I came up with this thing as I was filming, you know, sort of found the idea as I went. And I never imagined that it was going to, um, I don't know, be seen by anyone, never mind win an award. So, yeah, it was it was thrilling. I, yeah, I remember when I came up to you and you you seemed because the film hadn't had its premiere yet at Slamdance, mm-hmm. but I, I had seen it because they'd given it to me ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I remember you were very surprised that that me or, or, or maybe just just kind of anyone had seen it. That's and, right. Um, I'd had my review written. I, I, it's always awkward when you talk to creators mm-hmm. about about reviews because sometimes they want to nitpick things, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Well, that's your job. My job is to ignore right. your nitpicking." <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it, and it was. It, I was very, I was very happy for you to see that you you won that because uh, I'd met you. I knew what a nice guy you were, Thank and. You. Uh, having seen most of the, I mean, this, the slime dance slate was, uh, was pretty good, but, mm-hmm. uh, I, I again, repeat that, uh, I was not, not at all surprised by that in the slightest. And I, I'd gotten a chance to meet you, uh, uh, see you after the premiere again and, and hearing you talk about, um, just kind of the rush. I mean, this is, this is a, was a really intimate documentary for you that you worked on, 
uh, pretty much by herself for a while. That's right. And then to see that, um, your, your father isn't aware of the uh, prestige of, of, <laughs> of, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Anyone like you don't need, if you go to Sundance, you go to Slamdance, uh, they get a lot of entries. It right. is not easy to get accepted. And once you get accepted to that, you know, you got the, like banner of like official selection or, or something. I mean, that, that's, that's something that, that people, that, that is itself a very big award. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm getting this number right, but I think that they, they received this year at Slamdance 8,500 submissions and they pull from that 23 features. I mean, it is mind blowing. And I actually, uh, I've sent an email to Alina, the, the manager at the Slamdance office recently. She was writing about something else, but I wrote her to say, you know, I still can't believe I got into Slamdance, which is true. Six months later, I'm still sort of enjoying the rush of having gotten into the damn thing. And it's it's a high that's had to uh, last for uh, a long time because uh, I remember in the wake of like talking to fellow critics and and people from the festival um, after Sundance, all eyes were on South by Southwest mm-hmm. and um, subsequent film festivals, which didn't happen that's because right. of this uh, thing. I don't know if you've heard. There's this coronavirus that's been <laughs> going around, uh, me, and I, I haven't, mean, but I'm going to look into that. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, so, so you don't like nobody really wants to hear that Janu- like something happened in January was like the high point of your year because yeah, that implies right. that like the rest of the year is kind of kind of shitty. But I mean, I can't count the number of times I've said like, oh, thank God, because I wasn't sure I had had major surgery in October and I wasn't fully recovered mm-hmm. uh, by the time. And I, I, I I'm often. I often earn the wrath of uh, LA publicists by requesting an extra ticket to screening so that my mm-hmm. part, so my partner can drive me because I'm that 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 much of a pain in the ass. So I went to Sundance alone, mm-hmm. covering all of all of all of that stuff, and it's it, you know to to have been able to go to that and experience that even even before all of this stuff. Where if you told me if you told me that this stuff was going to happen, I would have stayed for every last minute of the festival. Right. Well, man, how lucky are are we, though, that we got to enjoy that festival, given that, like you said, the others were all canceled or or had to, um, you know, sort of do a cyber version of the festival, which, of course, just isn't the same. Right. And you've had to you've had to promote the film and uh, do all that stuff just totally virtually. And Toronto's Mm -hmm. got such a vibrant. uh, That's right film community i mean that must can you talk a little bit about just the 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 challenges and uh you know you've had to probably call a lot of audibles in terms of getting getting this film out there yeah well there was one festival in in uh toronto called the canadian film festival they show the best what they feel are the best canadian indie films of the year uh and they programmed shoot to marry as their closing night festival and that was going to be my chance to show um, my Toronto family and friends and also the people in the movie, because most of them are from Toronto, to show them the film in this really big theater called the Scotiabank Theater, downtown Toronto. Uh, I was really looking forward to that. That was supposed to happen in late March. And of course, that was canceled. So the festival did do something great. They were able to move the festival to a Canadian broadcaster a channel called super channel which is uh, a monthly subscription channel that shows movies um sort of a canadian hbo kind of thing and um all of the films that were scheduled to be in the festival were shown on this great tv network um and also i did well at that festival too because i won best feature at that fest so that was also exciting um so on the one hand, it sucked that we couldn't do the in-theater screening, but it was great that the organizers of the festival were able to move it to uh, to a broadcaster. Last night, actually, um, my film played in a f- film festival in uh, Long Beach, New Jersey, called LIF, Lighthouse International Film Festival. And what they did, which I think is very creative, they turned their festival this year into the world's first drive-in movie festival 
they showed all the films in a, in a, in a drive-in theater. And so uh, Shoot to Mary played last night at a drive-in. I think they were charging uh, $40 or $45 a car. Um, I actually did my Q&A with them just before hopping on this call with you. So, uh, and the film has also played in a few other uh, cyber festivals. So it's still gotten some festival exposure. Um, certainly nothing beats showing a film in front of a live audience. The energy, uh, especially for a film that has humor in it, you know, you want to enjoy that with an audience. Um, but I was able to get distribution uh, for the film. Um, a company called Gravitas came out to the screening at Slamdance and contacted me the next day and said they wanted the film, uh, which is awesome. And so it it dropped yesterday on iTunes and Apple TV and Amazon and all the major VOD platforms. So now anyone who wishes to see it can. That's uh it's great that I, I'm not at all surprised that they called the next day. There were a couple, I was at a couple of the press and industry screenings at Sundance and it was always fun to, uh, hear some of the phone calls, people literally making deals like behind me as I was just s- sitting there typing an article cool. on my phone. But, um, as, as we, as we wrap up, I have, I have two questions, mm-hmm. um, that are, are kind of linked. One is, uh, sort of a general, what do you hope uh, for people to take away from the film, but mm-hmm. also given the subject matter uh, of the film itself, if you have uh, dating advice for people who want to find love and maybe aren't able to make a documentary about it. Themselves. <laughs> uh, what people should get out of it is that we can be honest about how we're, feeling in our relationships, whether we're in, uh, in, a, in a broken relationship that we need to get out of, or it's just struggling in a relationship to make it work, or whether we're single and lonely or not lonely, wherever you're at, just, um, just know that you're not the only person who's feeling that. And, um, like I said earlier, we're, we're so used to seeing on social media, people posting their, uh, you know, feel good pics of them on vacation with their, uh, with their partners or celebrating an anniversary with the partner, all the good stuff. We can talk more openly about feeling like you're in a shitty place in your relationship or, or if you're single. So I hope people take that away. Um, because, you know, everybody so curates their relationships and life stories on social media. We don't have to curate. We can just get real because life is hard. Relationships are hard. Um, and we're all in the same boat. Nobody gets through life without taking a couple of punches to the heart. Dating advice for people who are single and looking for love. Um, again, I'm old fashioned. We began this, this call with me saying that I I like a phone call. Uh, people text too much. They email too much. And I would say that while Tinder and the other dating apps might, might work for, well, they do work for a lot of people. I would say be brave and don't be shy to approach people out on this in the supermarket, in the street, wherever. Make conversation with the stranger. I, you know, somebody told me recently that um, I don't know if this is true or not, but that that many women now feel that if someone approaches them cold on the street, they find that creepy. Now I hope that's not the case because. It should not be creepy to talk to a stranger. It should be lovely. Uh, I mean, you have to read the situation. Not everybody wants to be spoken with. And, uh, but I just think we've gone too far in the direction of moving relationships and connections online, on social media, on dating. It's, that does not, that can't replace real in-person human connection. 
I think that's important. I'm glad you brought up feelings. We have, uh, we talk about feelings a lot on this podcast. We have uh, an episode literally called Let's Talk About Feelings, but we've also snuck that into, um, we were doing an episode on a specific uh, character in Pokemon, and that ended up just being something that was uh, all about feelings. And it's important, and it's important to be able to acknowledge that stuff and to be able to talk to somebody about it. Just the the act of talking Mm -hmm. makes people... uh, feel better in a lot of cases so I, sure. I really this has been such a uh, great conversation i feel like i've learned a lot about you in the film uh and I, I i would to the audience really i i don't got out of my way to to really hype up films all that much because i just i watch so many but um shoot to marry has been one that i i think about a lot uh, it's it's a hilarious film. You're, it, hard pressed to find a funnier <laughs> doc- documentary, and Steve is just so warm, and uh, he really he's crafted such a such a gem here that I, I highly recommend it. You were the best, Ian Thomas Ballone. Thank you so much for this conversation. I've so enjoyed chatting with you. Well, thank you, and to uh, oh, so we'll link to the film which came out yesterday. We'll link to where you can find it. I highly recommend a link to my review as well. Uh, I, uh, and I'll, uh, link to your other, uh, social media, but, uh, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on. This has been great. I agree. Thank you. And, uh, to the audience, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Although we'll see you next time with, uh, I don't, I don't think we'll be back in Utah, but that'll be fun. <laughs> Bye.